Father, we give you thanks for another morning together, another Sunday to gather as a larger community of your people who, God, we want to worship you. We want you to be the focal point of everything. God, we don't approach following you out of what can we get out of it, but Jesus, you're worthy that every worship gathering should be you as the, the, main, the main focus of everything that we're about because we love you. And now as we dive into your word, God, who am I that I could get to preach your word? You've entrusted a ministry, and, and yet I don't feel adequate to teach, to try to make much of you. And so I pray that you would give... Uh, me wisdom and insight. God, keep me teachable and humble. Keep us all teachable and humble to receive your truth. Where we need to be challenged and convicted, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would be heavy in that. And where we need to be encouraged, I pray that you also would be heavy in that. But we want to open your word and be teachable that we might live lives that are holy and set apart for you because you're worthy and you're worth it. So God, I pray you would take this feeble attempt at making much of you and do the miraculous that only you can. God, we love you and we pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone who agrees says, amen, amen. First four, the first four words of verse two, but as for you, remember this is a letter written from Paul to one guy named Titus that he's saying, hey, I need you to go off to Crete. And we'll look at just a second what Crete's like uh, that island, what it was like. He's like, this is where I need you to go. I need you to take care of the church there. I need you to kind of bring some things back into order. But when you start off chapter two, but as for you, have to go back to see what it is that he's actually talking about because it's a contrast to what it is they were just looking at. So in chapter one, verse 15 to 16, he says this, to the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Guys, it's that phrase, even as I was just reading it again. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. And I wonder for the nuns that we just looked at, I wonder if part of their issue with the church is that verse is how many people in the church who say that they're part of the church say we know Jesus and we love Jesus and then all of a sudden our works don't really go in line with what it is that we're saying what Jesus is about. Like think about when Jesus, he's, he's supposed to be our example. Like this is who we are supposed to emulate. We were supposed to do everything that we can in our lives to look like Jesus, to live like Jesus did. Guys, one of the most humbling things for me is I think, okay, so I'm supposed to be like Jesus, and part of the example of Jesus is while he was being crucified, he's begging the Father to forgive those who were crucifying him. Guys, I don't know about you, that's not natural. That's not my natural response when I feel attacked. That physically, while he's enduring that, he's calling out for the forgiveness of those who were killing him. And yet, doesn't it feel like we kind of, we jump into this mentality as followers of Jesus because we have this battle. But when we look in the scriptures and says our battle's not against flesh and blood, it's not against other people. It's against the spiritual forces of this dark world. And yet, who do we fight with the most? We hear it, we say we believe it, but are we really living it? Then my battle's not against people. It's not against people who I don't agree with. It's not against people that hate me because I'm a Christian. It's not against anyone other, other than the spiritual forces of this dark world. If Jesus comes out and says, hey, I want you to love your enemies, and yet, how many of you feel justified to not do it? You don't pray for those who persecute you. You pray against those who persecute you. I wonder for a lot of the nuns, we can sit and go, well, that's just their generation. 
Do you, do you realize that every generation before your generation has always said that about your generation? But we can't just sit there and go, well, that's just them. Do you really think that that's why Jesus came and died and took a cross that we could actually just pull back and go, well, that's just them? Is anyone else thankful besides myself that there were people who poured into you that didn't give up on your generation? They poured into you and told you the gospel. Unless you had some coming to Jesus experience that was through a miraculous dream that God is doing around the world, unless you had that, my guess is that God used a person who spoke into your life because they listened to the call of God to impact people. Is it possible that for many, the main thing is they profess, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works? And it's easy for us to go, yeah, they, yeah, they do. But is anyone else guilty over the last couple weeks where you might have denied God by the things that you do? Guys, do you realize why confession and repentance is so necessary, not just at salvation, but daily, hourly, to confess where I've messed up, to confess where I, I, ran, I ran short, God, I'm so sorry, and to repent and to continue to move with Jesus When he says this, hey, but as for you, it's supposed to be different than these people that are just mentioned here. I've told you I have a conviction that the blueprint for the church is found in Acts chapter 2, 42 to 47. And if you've been part of this community for a while, you're going to be like, please don't read it again. You read it all the time. I'm going to read it again. Because I believe this is the blueprint. This is what it's supposed to be. It's not supposed to be an organization or a business. It's supposed to look something like this. And my, my ultimate desire as I continue to get to be part of this community is to continue to push this as much as I can toward what did the church look like in Acts? And let's mimic that because it sure seemed like God did amazing things through that church. No central place to meet. They met in homes. Most of them couldn't read and they didn't have Bibles for themselves, but man, they prayed. And the gospel went out, and the church exploded. And I look at them, and I hear people go, well, no, 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 we've, we've developed beyond that. I'm like, I don't want to develop beyond that. I don't want to be impressive. I want us to be effective for the kingdom. And so when you read in book of Acts, chapter 2, 42, and they, the early, the early believers, the early Christians, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Friends, if you say, say you, got, you got dumped on a desert island, and somebody's sitting there going, I'd like that. I'd like a little break. And you can pick whatever island. Okay, so you get that island. But all that you had to read was the book of Acts. And you read that thing, you devoured it, and after a while you get a little bored because it's the same scenery over and over and over. And then you, and then you get rescued and you come back to the States and you read the book of Acts and this was the church, this was the act of the early apostles, this was the acts of the church. And then you get back to the States and you go, where is that? Because does it look anything like what I just read? You know what they did? They constantly devoted themselves to what it is that the apostles were teaching, which is what Jesus taught them. And the breaking of bread, and it could have been their meeting in their homes. It's also the remembrance of communion. And then the fellowship, it's the gathering, it's the people. And to prayer, they devoted themselves. The word devoted means devoting constantly, always going back to this thing. These are the foundational parts. And after that, they worshiped together, they took care of each other, they hung out together. That's it. I look at that and I go, man, it's not a place. It's not another event on your calendar or something to attend. It's not a th another thing that you have to do. It was family. And Jesus was their life. 
It was their community. This is what they did everything with. They finally had what it is that their, their heart longed for, which was relationship with God, and then God gave us each other, and they entered into this. And so when you have Paul saying, hey, I want you to go back. I want you to go back to Crete, Titus, and I want you to get the church back in order. Because when you go back to the book of Acts, that, that church had this reputation that was absolutely mind-blowing to everyone around them. In the year 130, there was this letter. It's known as the letter of Diognetus. And we don't know the author. We don't know who wrote it. We don't really know much of Diognetus at all. But this letter started about, or was written about 130, and it's this letter defending Christianity of the critics. The critics, there was critics of Christianity back in the day. But when you read the description, and I read all, the, it says chapters, it wasn't very long, but 12 chapters of this letter. When you get to chapter five, it starts to describe what the church was like. Guys, listen to this. It says they, speaking of Christians, they dwell in their own countries, but simply as sojourners. As citizens, they share in all things with others, and yet endure all things as, it's for, as if foreigners. Every foreign land is to them as their native country, and then every land of their birth as a land of strangers. They marry as do others. They beget children, but they do not destroy their offspring. They have a common table, but not a common bed. They're in the flesh, but they do not live after the flesh. They pass their days on earth, but are citizens of heaven. They obey the prescribed laws, and at the same time surpass the laws in their lives. They love all and are persecuted by all. They're poor, yet they make many rich. They're completely destitute, yet they enjoy complete abundance. They're reviled, and yet they bless. When they do good, they are punished as evildoers. Undergoing punishment, they rejoice because they are brought to life. I read that, and I go, I want to be like that. Is this the reputation for today? We said, well, being persecuted, okay, fine. I don't think we're as persecuted as we think we are, but say that we are. What's our response? Because in this letter to describe the early church, hey, they love all, and they're persecuted by all. And when people punish them, they rejoice. Like they're so different. They're out of their minds, right? Isn't that what it kind of sounds like? I mean, they don't respond or react like anyone else around them. And isn't it supposed to be like that? See, we have a choice. We can either impact our society or be impacted by it. We can either change our culture or be changed by it. And we need to constantly go back to what do the scriptures say? Because God, this is God's revealed will to us. This is how I want you to live. This is how I want you to be. This is, this is how I want you to respond and not react, but respond. But not to take the culture that's around us and take the parts that we like. Because think about it. How many of you like, be honest. I don't know if you'll raise your hand on this one. How many of you liked, how many of you like revenge? No one's gonna raise your hand. Okay, a couple of you. Guys, we watch movies about it, right? Movies come out, it's like, I'm not gonna raise my hand, but I like that one. And when you watch a movie that's kind of vengeful, you're like, oh yeah. And say it's someone who's getting what they deserve, you're like, yeah, you get what you deserve. And you kind of pretend that you're that person. You know, when I read in the book of Romans, I'm supposed to avenge myself against no one. I'm not supposed to show vengeance against anyone. Why? Because vengeance belongs to the Lord. That's his thing. And then all of a sudden we'll read a passage like that and say, yeah, but what about? Guys, if there was a yeah, but about part in that passage, I would jump all over it because who doesn't like a little revenge story? But there isn't. But again, we'll justify. We'll justify. Are you saying that if this happens to me, I'm supposed to? I'm just going to say we go back to what Jesus did and we go back to how Jesus lived and if we're honest, if we're completely honest, how he lived is completely opposite than how we want to. And the only reason that we want to do any part of it is why? Because the Holy Spirit of God is in us and he's transforming us into the likeness of Jesus. True? How bad was Crete? A couple of things I mentioned last week. Polybius. An ancient historian back in the day said this, it was almost impossible to find personal conduct more treacherous or public policy more unjust than in Crete. 
Craig Keener, a New Testament scholar, says this, Crete also had a bad reputation for arrogance, treachery, and greed. Gluttony was associated with love of pleasure as opposed to love of knowledge. And when Paul quotes one of their own prophets about Crete in chapter 1, verse 12, he says, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. And the next verse he says something like, and it's true. I mean, I've heard the prophets say this about them, and oh, it's true. So have fun, Titus. Get in there. Get your hands dirty. But as Titus goes in, what is one of the things that he warns him about first? <laughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> he says this, but as for you, yes, I know that that's what they're like, but as for you, and he goes on. He says, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Now, here's what I think happens when we read a verse like this. When it gets to that word teach, I think a whole lot of people, I think the majority of the church looks and sits there and goes, I'm not a teacher. I don't teach the Bible. So, Brian, pay attention. This is you. Except when you look up with the word. The Greek word for that actually means to speak about freely. It has nothing to do with teaching with regards to the, the official role of teaching the scriptures. This is just talking about Oh, crud. So I'm just bringing you right back into the Bible. This part applies for everyone. So say he sends us. Say someone sends us off to Crete. This would not be, hey, just make sure that the pastor hears this. No, no, no. This is for all of us. So it's almost like he's saying, hey, I want you to speak freely about what's true and what's healthy. Every single one of us have that call. The only way that I know how to speak what's true and what's healthy is that I actually know what's true. Again, you hear me saying it, guys, get in the word, get in the word, get in the word. And aren't there parts in the scripture you go, I don't like that part. Yes, hang in there with it. Hang in there with it. Why? Because God is always right. May every man be a liar, but God is always true. Romans, I think it's Romans chapter three. May God be true to every man, every man or woman a liar. So when I'm confronted with the things in Scripture that I just don't like because it confronts something that I want to hold on to in my flesh and in my sin, I then say, but God, you're right, I'm a liar. You're right, I'm wrong. I want to submit to you. I want to submit to what your word says, which means this, followers of Jesus, we have to come to some conclusion about what do we actually believe the word of God to be? What do we believe this book to truly be about? Are there just some nice lessons in here, self-help? This is how you can have a blessed life? Or do we open the pages and go, oh my goodness, I am reading the very words of God. And the Holy Spirit wants to speak to me right now through the pages of this book. And I'll get to it after I post about the fact that I'm going to read it. And then after you post about the fact that you're going to read it, isn't it amazing how much time goes by because all of a sudden you just started reading the post of everybody else who's saying they're doing the same thing. And all of a sudden we ran out of time. But when you share things with people, are you sharing truth? Guys, I'm convinced that I will be judged more strictly because I teach his word. I'll also be judged for every word that I share just as a follower of Jesus, and I'm convinced that he'll look at me and say, when you said that, what were you thinking? I wasn't thinking at all. You can tell I said it. Friends, we need to know the truth. We need to know what's right and good and healthy. And he says, but as for you, teach or speak about freely what accords with sound doctrine, what it sounds with truth. A better translation of this is from the Christian Standard Bible, the CSB, it says this, but you are to proclaim things consistent with sound teaching. And then he goes to verse two, he says, older men. He's like, okay, you're gonna go teach things, right? You're gonna share things, so you're gonna go to the older men first. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older men, I'm not gonna ask you to raise your hands. Embarrassing, too tired, I don't know what it is. When you look at that list, how are you doing? Sober-minded. See, I think that's a, that's, it could be one of two things as I was reading, what does the word mean? One could be it's connected to being sober, which I think is a, it's a positive thing to be sober, to not be taken over by drinking too much, or by taking over too many pleasures in our life. But it's also this sense of humility. 
Is there a sense of humility, gentlemen, that when you think of yourself, and I'm not saying that's humiliation. Guys, I gotta be honest, for those that struggle with insecurity, isn't it amazing how often we can look in the mirror and not like the person that we're looking at? I mean, I'm, I'm, the, I'm my hardest critic. But guys, that's, that's just as bad, in my opinion, as those who look in the mirror and go, oh, there's no one greater than me. I'm amazing. Having this sober-mindedness means, hey, God, I know I've got some things to work on, and I know, I definitely know I'm not way up there, but I'm not way down here. I want to thank you that you saw value in me and you came for me. The fact that you've changed me and are changing me. I want to thank you that you're consistent with me and, and love me and kind toward me. And I see the difference. I see the change in my life from when I first started walking with you to now. Doesn't that sound a little bit more sober-minded? Dignified. Self-controlled. The ability to say no. The ability to say yes when necessary. To be sound or solid in your faith. Like, have you grown in your faith? Has your faith increased? I mean, do we even ask God, God, did you give me more faith? Guys, I want to have that kind of faith, and I'm not there yet. I want to have that kind of faith that no matter what circumstance comes my way, the first thing that I don't want to do is to blame God and then say, how dare you let this happen? Fix it. You know what? That's entitlement. What if in that moment, God gets me to that place in my faith where I can say, God, I don't get it. You can do whatever you want. You're sovereign. You can take it away if you want, but your will be done. Your will. Your will. I trust you no matter what. No matter what you do. No matter what you want. I'm going to trust you. I want that kind of faith. I don't want to keep begging and asking him, God, would you give me that kind of faith? And love? Ah, oh, that one's hard. To love everyone? No matter what? Yep. And steadfastness or patience, that's the one we don't pray for often. Because when you pray for that's the one I've said it before, you pray for patience and God's like, are you sure you're really asking me to give you patience? Because he's not just going to go... It's not like a Superman web or Spider-Man web. He's going to put you in the situation where you actually have to practice it. That was like, God, would you just give me patience, give me patience. And all of a sudden that person comes around the corner, you're like, not right now, not right now. I don't want to do it. And God's like, I thought you wanted patience. Yeah, but not through them. That's too much. So he says, I want you to go to the older men. I want you to challenge them with this. And he goes, hey, and to the older women, likewise. Which means, hey, I had something to say to the older guys. Yeah, but you got to make sure you tell the older women this part too. He says, they're to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They're to teach what is good. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home. That last phrase, ladies, that tick anybody else off? Maybe there's some women going, what? How come I'm not talking to men like that? Well, here's the thing. I want to encourage you with what I think actually the scriptures do teach about women working outside the house. I don't think that the scriptures say that women, you cannot work outside the house. I think there's plenty of places in scriptures that it does teach that. But here's the thing. What if it did? I don't think that it does. But what if it did? What would your reaction be? If God said, this is what I want. Huck! Don't you dare. Guys, I always make sure that we use scripture as the commentary for scripture. I don't think that this means, women, your place is at home. Shut up. Just do what you're told. Go home, vacuum some stuff, make me some dinner. Thank you, Kelly. Amen. I don't think that's what it means. Guys, it can't mean that because there's places in scripture where you see women working. Lydia in the New Testament she sold purple garments, which meant, guys, she was rolling. She's rolling in the dough. She was wealthy. Purple garments in that day, you were making bank. Because she made bank, she had a home where the early church could gather. So she would host the early church. You see the early, and when Jesus is walking along, some of his disciples were women. It says that they were supporting Jesus' ministry. The only way they can support Jesus' ministry is that they're actually making money. And then you get to Proverbs 31. And if you've been brought up in the church, women, this is where you sit there and go, oh my gosh, Proverbs 31. Do you feel the weight? You're supposed to be perfect. 
like a whole half chapter of Proverbs 31, you're like, how could I be her? I don't think it means that you better be there right when you come to Christ. It's like, look at these characteristics of a godly woman. It's beautiful. But what if you missed a few of them today? It's called grace. But listen to what, listen to what the writer of Proverbs says. She makes linen garments and sells them. That sounds like a what? Job. Unless she's selling them to her own kids. Hey, I can't work outside the home. Come here, kids. I write some, buy it. No, no, where's your allowance? Give it back. It's like, I don't think that's what was happening. She delivers sashes to the merchant. So I don't think it's sitting there going, women, the only place is for you is home. However, what I will say is this, and I believe this goes for every parent, men and women, but since he's talking to the women first, he's like, however, what I think this verse means is actually manage your home. I think a danger for those of us who work outside of the home is this. We can all, we can all at some point, we'll, we can try to find our identity and what it is that we do outside of the home. So watch, this is my job. And for the longest year, for, for a lot of my years of doing ministry as a pastor, this was my identity. Not just what I did, but my identity. And so I'd go and I'd work all day and I'd come home and then I'd, and I'd stay there a little bit longer because I got to get things done, which I don't even know what I was doing. Then I'd come home and then i have dinner and then after dinner I got to jump back on the laptop. Why? Because I was hyper busy? No! Because I needed to make sure I was busy because when I was busy, then I was valuable. When I was valuable, then I was needed and welcome to my identity. And that should never happen at the expense of my family and my home. So what he's saying is manage your home. For those, those, you don't work outside the home. You work home. The greatest calling you can be called to is that. Your family. And friends, my identity is still not wrapped up in being husband or dad. First and foremost, my identity is lover of Jesus, son of the creator because of Christ. But whether we work inside the home or not, we manage the home. We are intentional about caring for the family. That's what he's saying. Because in the Greco-Roman world, do you realize that most of the women had their own room to hang out in and never hang out with the men in the home? In their own home, they just kind of stay to themselves. And so here Paul is looking at a situation going on culturally. He's saying, hey, wives, older women, you got to train in this because they're so, don't just do nothing at home because I know you're there and you wish you didn't have to be, but manage it, work it, take care of it. What a high calling. Be kind and submissive to their own husbands that the word of God may be reviled. Or that the word of God may not be reviled. He's like, older women, I want you to train up the younger women about this. Like, make sure they get this. It's not like, hey, you get married and you just figure it all out. For those who've been married for a while, did you have someone pour into you early on where you could explain some things that were going on? And when you explained it, they kind of laughed and they're like, you're fine. And you're like, oh, thank God. Okay, really? We're good? Yeah, you're fine. If you haven't, if you've never had, that, if you've never had a couple, young couples, I really want to challenge you. Introduce yourself to an older couple that you know that's been married for a while and they're doing it well and learn from them. I got to be honest. Friends, just because you said I do and you put the ring on doesn't make you go, perfection. You got it. I felt it. The Holy Spirit. Once the ring went, boom, I feel perfect. Guys, you learn how to be married well from those who've done it well before you. Guys, this is so important. And doesn't it just seem practical? It's like, I want to make sure you pass on these things. And let's at the wives. Hey, train the younger ones. Be kind and submissive to their own husbands. And another phrase that I think is so, it's so butchered today. Again, Guys, if this was the only place in Scripture that is, that is written, ladies, if it was only here, but friends, he says in Ephesians chapter 5, he says it in Colossians chapter 3, Peter says it in 1 Peter chapter 3. This is what God is saying, but it's in the context of the same thing when God looks at, when Paul is writing, inspired by the Holy Spirit, to the husbands and says, and husbands, as they're submissive to you, I want you to love your wife like Christ loved the church. It's never separate. It's always together. And we can push against that. 
But for those who want to push against that, you have to come to some understanding. What does the scriptures teach then? What are the scriptures teaching? In four different places, just in the New Testament. Because when I look at it, when we do it, what God says, prescribed in the scriptures, not like, hey, woman, I'm in charge, shut it, make me dinner. Hey, go outside, take care of it, get the mail, wash the car. No, 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 no. I serve Kelly with everything that I have to the honor of Jesus. And when I do, her submitting to me is not a chore. It's a joy. It's called a dance. And we're so worried about who's leading the dance. Who cares? Who cares who's in charge? Jesus is in charge. We'll do what he says, and I have to answer to him one day on how it is that I cared for her. But as long as we keep trying to nitpick about what some of these things mean and say, realize the Bible was not written only for the 21st century family in North America. This is God's word, and we have to come under what he says. But then notice the motivation behind why he's saying this about righteous living. That the word of God may not be reviled. He's saying, I want you to teach these things to the older men, older women, pass them on to the younger ones. That the word of God may not be reviled. The word reviled means to be blasphemed or insulted or cursed. In other words, friends, we're supposed to make sure that we're paying attention about the reputation of the word. As followers of Jesus, guys, how often? Guys, I know we all screw up, but I pray that we're repentant and sensitive to that. But I sure, at the end of my life, even at the end of the day, I had a life down the way, but at the end of the day, I really want people to see a difference in me. Even if I screw up, how, how amazing is when I screw up to actually look at the person and go, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry I screwed up. And I can't even bring Jesus into it. Gosh I'm, a, gosh, I'm a follower of Jesus, and God's word says this, and I didn't do that. I'm so sorry. Would you forgive me? Would that not even speak, would that not even speak multitudes to an unbelieving generation that thinks that the Bible's just full of a bunch of junk? Because the followers don't do what it says. And then it goes to the younger men. And this is all one sentence. Likewise, Urge the younger men to be self-controlled. That's it. Why? Because younger men, you're perfect. No. I think it's more like this. Can you imagine Paul going, oh, where do I start with the younger men? Okay, if they can just do this one thing, I think their whole life would be changed. Just tell them to learn how to be self-controlled. Start there. That's it. Yeah, if they do that one thing, they're going to be golden. Now, guys, I know it's not supposed to start there. Why? Because when he talks to the older men, he says you're supposed to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. When he goes to the younger men, just start with the self-controlled part. Start there. Because the process, I want, them to, I want them to become like the older men of faith. So make sure you at least confront them with that. Not because the other things don't matter, but that's what he wrote down for that moment. So how do we apply this? Older with younger, older with younger. Guys, here in our community... I've asked, hey, three things I'd like for people to be involved in. Just three. We don't do a ton of events, tons of programs, just three things. Worship gathering. It's so cool to see so many here. There's something that happens when God's people get together to worship. And it goes into Acts chapter two. They met daily in the temple courts, and I believe it's to worship. And I believe that's to love God. Guys, our mission statement is to love God, love people, and to make disciples who make disciple makers. So loving God, we're gonna gather, we're gonna gather and Let's read the Bible on your own. Read the Bible and pray. Start there. How do you love people? Guys, I unapologetically desire for everyone to be in what's called a home church. But home churches are not people in the same stage and same age of life. And here's why. They're not designed for that. You guys can invite anybody that you want. Guys, I need to learn from those who are older than me. I need to learn from those who have kids that are out of the house. What's it like? What do I need to do as a parent to make sure that I'm preparing them for when they leave? And then tell me, what's life when, what's life when, they're, when they're gone? What's it like? For people who've never gone through it, how do we tell each other those things? And yet for the longest time, for decades and decades and decades, we just stick people in what? Same age, same stage, same age, same stage. 
Older people, you know what we need? We need the younger ones in our lives. Those of us who are older, you know what we also need? We need the younger ones and their babies and their kids in our lives. Why? Because we like them. Your Thanksgiving feast is not all your friends, right? Not just the people your own age. Thanksgiving feasts have everybody, all ages. You don't sit there and go, um, you need to make sure you get babysitting for Thanksgiving because we don't want the babies here. They're going to interrupt our time. Same age, same stage. No, no, no. All ages. All ages coming together. Why? Welcome to the church. It's the church. And for those little ones that don't have, a, they don't have one or two or any grandparents, all of a sudden the older ones, you get to jump in and be grandparents. Welcome to the family, the community. Love God, love people, and make disciples who make disciple makers. So I want everyone in a worship gathering. I want everyone in a home church. And I want everyone in a D group. Why? Because in D groups, you learn how to become disciple makers. For a year to be in the word, going through the word with other believers, three to five men or three to five women, and just going through it. And then at the end of that year, year and a half, two years, however long it's going to be, you make the commitment, you'll go find three to five women or three to five men and go do the same thing that you just did with them. I'm telling you, it blows your mind. I've gone through year two, and each year it has been awesome. The boldness that I have to actually go up to people now is not because I'm amazing, I've made it, I'm Pastor Brian. No, it came because I got into a D group and we had to challenge each other with this question. How did you do it sharing Jesus this week? Dang it. Because if by Saturday night I didn't do it, I'm like, oh crud, who can I get? Who can I get? Who can I go after? And I go outside, nobody's there. So you just call tech support on anything. Hey, how you doing? Um, I'm calling about my refrigerator. Yeah, what's wrong? Nothing really. But do you know the Lord? It's like you want to just jump in there. But all of a sudden, boldness starts to build. You start to grow in your knowledge and understanding of the scriptures. You pray. And this brotherhood, men, this brotherhood builds. And ladies, what I've heard, because I'm not a sister, but a sisterhood builds. Believers getting together, doing the things that they did in scripture. That's it. Why? Because I think for far too long, when we make church another thing to be at and another thing to do, you have to see if you have room in your calendar to be the church. I don't know if I have enough time in my calendar to actually go to that. I'm not asking you to go into anything. I'm asking you to be the community. Guys, when I look in Colossians chapter three, it says, when Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. What's the key part of that verse for me? Yeah, Jesus is coming back one day and I'll appear with him in glory. But when Christ who is your life, Christianity is not something I add into my life and it fits with what I like and it's more of my preference. No, no, no. When Christ is your life, then I want to do the things that Jesus wants because he's my life. He's just not, he's not part of it. He's it. In chapter 2, verse 7, he goes, okay, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teachings, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be to, may, I'm sorry, so that an opponent may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us. He says, okay, you're going to tell the older men, tell the older women, have them pass it down to the younger ones. You can't do it all by yourself. Get them all involved to be part of it. And then, but as for you, Titus, you got to be what? Let's just sum it up, above reproach. You gotta make sure that when you're telling them these things, you're living it out. And when people look at you, they go, okay, he's doing it. And to live in such a way that when people who are opponents just accept it, friends, there are going to be people that don't like us. The majority of the world will not like Christians. They will hate Christians. Friends, that is why Christians are the most persecuted religious group on the planet just accept it. But when we are, we bless. When we are, we love and we pray. So that an opponent may be put to shame all on their own. Not us. We have to say a word. Having nothing evil to say about us. But Brian, they're persecuting us. But yeah, are they persecuting us because of us? Or are they persecuting us because of them? Am I giving them reason to persecute me and to hate me? 
<laughs> or am I actually living this life above reproach? And they go, I just don't like your God. I don't like the things you believe because you're psycho. But man, you're nice. You sure love me well. I'm blasting into your face and you're just telling me how much you love me. That's the reality of the presence of the Holy Spirit. When we live like that, so we want to make sure we're living a life so that there's the reputation of the word, it's elevated, but also the reputation of the church, having nothing evil to say about us. He didn't say nothing evil to say about you, but he says to us, the church. We want to be mindful of the reputation of the church. And then to verse 9 and 10. And I know this gets slippery, so hang in there with me. I'll do the best I can. Bond servants or slaves are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They're to be well-pleasing, not argumentative. Not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Now hold on for just a second. Let me go through this. Guys, in this time period, in the Roman world, there was an estimated 50 million people who were quote-unquote slaves. But slavery in that day is not like it was. And, and the horror of our history as a nation in so many different places around the world in the 18th and 19th century, that's not the same thing here. Do you realize that even in Exodus chapter 21, God spoke against stealing people from one place to take them somewhere else. He spoke against it. Anyone who does that is to be killed. That in this day, yes, were there some that would take advantage? Absolutely. Those who were bond servants were seen as property or things. But friends, a lot of, them, a lot of people jumped into it voluntarily to get out of financial trouble. Well, why didn't Paul just speak against it? Guys, we read the whole Bible all to put together. You realize in Philemon, in Philemon, when Onesimus goes back to Philemon, who's the slave owner, and Onesimus is the slave, Paul sends him back because Onesimus ran away from him. He sends him back, and then he make, writes this small little letter to Philemon. He says, hey, you now have Onesimus back. Don't receive him as a slave, but now receive him as your brother. Are there places in the Old Testament that talk about this is how you're supposed to treat a slave? Yes. Does that mean that God's saying, I want people to be in slavery? No. Like, what? How can you get away with that? Guys, think about it. At the Museum of the Bible in Washington, D.C., there is one copy of a, of a Bible. It's called the Slave Bible. Do you realize that in the Slave Bible, out of about 1,189 chapters that are in our scriptures, they took so many out, about 90, oh, sorry, about 90% of the Old Testament's taken out, and about 50% of the New Testament is taken out. So they have about 250 chapters in what's called the Slave Bible. Why would that be? Guys, no slave owner wanted anyone to read the book of Exodus. The whole book of Exodus was taken out. Why? Because when Moses comes in and says, let my people go, here's a people in slavery for 400 years, and I want them out. I want them freed. Let them come. Do you think a slave owner wants a slave to see that? Guys, the only reason you take out that much of the Bible and you don't want slaves to read is because that, that, those parts of the Bible actually talk about freedom and liberty, which gives hope to those who are slaves so that they could be free. And you realize that you're created in the very image of God and therefore we all have intrinsic value. You realize, oh my gosh, the horrors of slavery in the 18th and 19th century in our country, horrible. So why doesn't Paul just say, just rebel? Because there are only maybe 30,000, give or take, Followers of Jesus in this time, 50 million slaves, and any revolt would end up with people killing their slaves. And so is it possible, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, God's sitting there going, you got to trust me in the timing. Don't go too fast on this because I don't want you to die. When you read the pages of the scriptures, you see liberty and freedom. Guys, it's preached and proclaimed and if Christianity is so about slavery, why did so many people who called themselves slaves or were in slavery, why did they come to follow Christ? It doesn't make any sense. You don't go to that which is the most appreciative of, of slavery unless it's not. It says, I want to make sure that, here's the application for us. Employees, do you work in such a way that you're bringing honor and glory to Jesus by the way that you work? Students, are you showing honor and respect to teachers and working in such a way that you're bringing honor and glories to Jesus? 
So we put in this idea of employees are to be submissive to their own masters and everything there to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, which means stealing, but showing all good faith so that in everything, so that, here's the reason, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. For those of you that have a job and you're employed, do you find yourself pilfering? I can take a pen. I can take a few pens. Do you realize if every employee takes a few pens, the employer still has to pay for those things? It's like, well, it's just a pen. That's not your pen. I got a box of paper clips. I know. Amazon. They'll deliver them right to your house. For those that have the sass, you just let your boss have it. They're a jerk. Do we honestly sit there and think, oh, God's like, I didn't know they were a jerk. Never mind. Let them have it. Or do we look at Jesus while he's been crucified, he asks for the forgiveness of those who are crucifying him. Why? Because we don't want to bring any shame to the doctrine of the gospel, the doctrine of, the God, the doctrine of God our Savior. See, our citizenship in heaven should completely transform our existence on earth. How we live here should be directly connected to what citizenship we hold to be most important to us. If you call yourself a follower of Jesus, then we should look different here and followers of Jesus, we can follow Jesus in any culture, any country, any place, and live according to the standards of what Scripture teaches, and we will be a blessing to them, no matter how they respond to us. See, we want to make sure we live so that there's a reputation for the Scriptures, for the reputation of the church, and for the reputation of God. So they go, well, God can defend himself. I get that. I can never truly do anything for him. But how often do you hear people like this? I don't want your God because all you Christians are a bunch of hypocrites. And we sit there and go, don't you dare. And we start getting in the fight. And we just prove the point. But what if we say this? You're right. We are. Oh, we're trying. We've heard them say it. We've heard people say it. I don't want your God. A bunch of hypocrites. Guys, you got to at least accept sometimes it's kind of true. And so what do we do? We try to live our life to bring honor to God's word, to bring honor to the church that God set up, but ultimately to bring honor to God. In whatever circumstance and situation we find ourselves, as the worship team comes back up, I wrote this in my notes. We are created and called to be different to the glory of Jesus. We are created and called to be different to the glory of Jesus. Friends, I know there's so much going on in the world. I get it. There's oppression that happens all around the world. I know. And you sit there and go, so what are we going to do about it? Well, I got to be honest. I don't know how much I can do right here in Rancho or Claremont or Glendora or Duarte or wherever you live. But what I can do is I can present the gospel to people and see people changed around me and dwelt by the Holy Spirit and see the gospel begin to move out to people. I can engage people face-to-face -face rather than just making videos that people think, of, hey, people are going to actually get this and we're going to relate. It's going to hear about Jesus. What if I actually did it face-to-face? -face? Oh, no, that takes too much effort. I know. Welcome to the mission. And the beauty of the gospel is, hey, Jesus came for me and I didn't deserve it. And he came for you, you don't deserve it. And the gospel's for everyone. The lowest of the low in society, how do I know? Because Paul made sure that 50 million people would hear about this. 50 million people that had seen his property, he's sitting there going, I want you to understand, you're called to this gospel and the way that you live is gonna bring honor to God and the circumstance you find yourself in. It is so hard, I get that, but all to the glory of God, why? Because all of us, no matter where, we find ourselves in our culture, we are all slaves to Jesus. We're citizens of heaven and therefore we are free. No matter what. Guys, the power of the gospel, the beauty of Jesus, guys, the power of his word. We're called and created to be different. Guys, let's show him the difference, and it's not all on us. In the morning, we spend time with the Lord, 
And we simply say, Holy Spirit, live through me. Convict me all day, all day, that I could live set apart for you. I can't do this by myself. But I want to honor you today. I want to glorify you today. And I want people to meet you because, I want people to meet Jesus because of you and me. God, please, today, what if we had that burden and passion to do that every morning? What if every follower of Jesus woke up saying that exact same thing every morning? Do you really think that that's a, that's a prayer that God's suddenly going, no, nah, I don't want to do that? Or what if he's just waiting for us to ask? We show the difference because we're different. Let's be different. Friends, as we go back into a time of singing, we take a time where we remember Jesus' death for us. We remember communion, his body broken for us, his blood shed for us. Before you take, if you're a follower of Jesus, this is the time for you. Before you take, you ask, God, is there anything in my life that's, that's sin against you? I want to confess it. And as you sit under that, as we go through the singing part, as you sit, just confess, God, you're right, I'm so sorry. Will you forgive me? And it's not forgiveness to be saved again, it's forgiveness to restore intimacy with him. You remember his death. And when you take the cup, you remember his blood shed for you. And you take with grateful hearts, for God so loved the world. Oh, the grace of God is beautiful. It is so beyond us. He is so good. And so in this time, let me pray. And you take your communion, you take the elements when you're ready as we continue with this last song. Holy Spirit, I pray you would convict us. Convict us of sin that we need to confess to you. Jesus, we thank you for your sacrifice. We thank you that you gave up your life. We thank you that, your body, that you, you gave yourself up, that your body was broken and your blood was shed for the forgiveness of sins and that those of us who surrendered were forgiven and righteous before God. And Father, we thank you that you sent your son because you so loved the world. God, it is grace. It starts with grace. It ends with grace. It's all about your grace. So God, we thank you. Now empower us to live lives that are different. We can't do it without you. God, we love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone who agrees says, amen. Love you more than you know.